I invite you to turn in the Word of God to the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3. You'll find that on page 1004 in the Pew Bible. Zephaniah 3, page 1004. <clears throat> Zephaniah 3, beginning at verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the people's to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain." But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. The judgments of God have been coming fast and furious against his people, Israel. His denunciations against them because of their sin and rebellion have occupied most of the book of Zephaniah up to this point. In chapter 1, he promised judgment upon Judah because of their incessant rebellion and their disobedience against God. They have sinned against the Lord. In chapter 2, he throws the net even wider, the prophet Zephaniah does, and he promises judgment on all the nations to the west and to the east, to the south and to the north. Again, because of their disobedience, their arrogance and haughtiness against the Lord. And then he zeroes in in chapter 3, the first eight verses, not on the nation of Judah specifically, but on the city of Jerusalem as representative of the whole nation. And he levies judgment against them. God is going to gather them together with all the nations to pour out upon them his indignation, his burning anger, the fire of his jealousy, and he will consume them from off the face of the earth. So it hasn't been a very pleasant uh, book up to this time, a prophecy of denunciation and judgment coming from the righteous hands of the Lord. And if that were the only thing we heard from God, what a terrible, miserable life we would live. Because we would understand that he's right to suggest that or to promise judgment because of our own sinfulness. And if all we heard is that God would deal with us according to our sins, life would be an unbearable reality. And even reading the prophet Zephaniah would be unpleasant. But as you know in the Word of God, though God does speak the notes of judgment, 
Those are never his only notes, nor, thank God, are they his final notes. And so here at the beginning of this last section of Zephaniah's prophecy, God promises grace and blessing. He's going to do a work of mercy and kindness. He's, he's not going to come in judgment, but he's going to come in compassion and bring blessing. He's going to purify the peoples, not only his own people, but he's going to purify the Gentiles, the nations all around, and bring them into fellowship with his own people, the Jews, and then with himself so that they might worship him together. So that's one. The prophet Zephaniah is speaking about in these verses that were just read, verses 9 through 13. God is going to purify the nations. And in verses 9 and 10, he focuses attention on the Gentile nations. In verses 11 through 13, or at least 11 through most of 13, he's going to be speaking about the nation of Judah in particular, God's covenant people. But in verses 9 and 10, he speaks about the peoples, the nations surrounding uh, the nation of Israel. And God promises that he's going to do a sovereign work. Notice what he says there, beginning in verse 9, for at that time... I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. God is going to intervene in the lives of the nations and purify their speech. Now, when we think about God changing their speech, undoubtedly our minds are taken all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis 11. Remember how there God has spoke about the, the peoples, the nations who had gathered together in the plain of Shinar, and they had built a tower uh, in order to reach the heavens. And all these people were working, it says there in Genesis 11, in order to make a name for themselves. They were not living for the glory of God. They were not seeking to spread his fame throughout the whole world earth. No, they were gathered together to make a name for themselves. And there God came down in judgment, and he scattered the peoples and confused their language. But now here in Zephaniah 3, God is coming in mercy. Again, he's going to change their speech. But the speech now, he says, is going to be a pure speech. Now, Zephaniah doesn't tell us how this is going to happen. We know from the rest of Scripture, the only way it can happen is if God takes out the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. It only can happen when God regenerates sinners, when he, by his Spirit, gives them new life and new birth in his grace and mercy. Because remember, and what our Lord Jesus told us. It is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so to change the speech is not just an, a matter of changing the language or changing the words. It's always a matter of changing the heart. And so God, in his sovereign power, he promises that the peoples of the earth, not all of them, as we'll see, but the peoples of the earth are going to have a changed speech. 
And then he goes on to say that that speech at the end of verse 9, that speech will enable them to call upon the name of the Lord. And notice they're going to call upon the name of the God of Jacob and Abraham and Isaac. Lord there is in capital letters, small caps, referring to God's covenant name, so that all the nations of the world are going to have a changed speech, a pure speech, which will lead them to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, we know that that call upon the name of the Lord is a shorthand for crying out to the Lord that he would have mercy in place of judgment. We see this in Joel 2, for instance, when Joel prophesies the coming of the Spirit upon all flesh. And he says there in Joel 2, verse 32, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Paul picks up on that too in Romans 10, verse 13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, now this is what the prophet is saying. He sees in the future that God is going to change the hearts of the Gentiles. There's going to be this revival. With a changed heart will come pure speech. And with that pure speech, they will call upon the Lord that he would have mercy upon them, that he would save them from the judgment that they deserve because of their sins. Zephaniah promises a revival. There's going to be a great work of God, and hearts are going to be changed, and sinners are going to be saved. And then notice, they will call upon the name of the Lord, and then they will serve him with one accord. The language actually is they will serve him with one shoulder. Or the way we would say it, they would serve him shoulder to shoulder. That the nations that have always been characterized by division and hostility and antagonism, God, by his gospel, by the preaching of Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit, is going to change the Gentiles so that they're going to come together and stand shoulder to shoulder to serve the Lord. This is how he puts it in verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush. Remember in chapter 2, verse 12, he says the Cushites shall be slain by the sword. God's going to come into judgment against the Cushites. But evidently, not all of them are going to be slain. Because he says here, eh, the river, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So God's grace is going to reach down south, beyond the rivers of Nile, the Blue Nile and the other Nile, into the, the lands of the Cush. And God is going to bring them to himself. And they are going to bring tribute to the Lord. They're going to bow before him and swear allegiance to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are going to worship him. Now, we know that this has been God's plan from, from before uh, the nation of Israel was begun. You remember how, how God had said uh, when he called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, he said, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing, and through you, all the families of the world will be blessed. 
And it's true that in the Old Testament, God focused particularly upon one nation, the nation of Israel. But he only did that in order to reach all the nations. He focused on the one to reach the many. So that in the fullness of time when Jesus Christ came into the world, he came not only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, though he certainly came for them, but as the high priest said in John 11, that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, not for the Jews only, but also to gather into one. Think about what Zephaniah says. They will serve him with one shoulder. To gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Christ, in his death on the cross, had this design, not just to bring blessing to the Jews, but to gather the Gentiles from all the nations of the world and to bring them into his fold so that they would join with the Jews in the worship of the one true and living God. So that's a great hope. So when, when does this take place? Well, obviously it says there in verse 9, at that time. I'm kidding a bit. It's hard to know when this prophecy is going to be fulfilled. We know it begins to be fulfilled in the day of Pentecost. Remember, remember in Jerusalem, there is in Acts 2 this list of nations. People from all over had gathered together in Jerusalem, Jews and proselytes. Uh, proselytes. And, and they had come together uh, to, to worship God in Jerusalem. And while they were there, they heard Peter preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And they all heard him speak in their own tongue. You see, Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. God is, is, is taking away the confusion where people in, in Babel in Genesis 11 had, had, had gathered together in, in order to, to make a name for themselves. Now in Acts 2, God gathers them together so that they might glorify God because they all heard the mighty works of the Lord in their own language. And so it begins at Pentecost. And then it continues throughout the history of the world. This is what the Great Commission is all about. Go to the nations. Tell them that God reigns. And tell them that he's a God of grace who welcomes sinners from all peoples into his kingdom. And so that's what happened. And that's what's happening to this very day. It's interesting that, that uh, we read here about uh, the nations beyond the rivers of Cush. Well, uh, in a couple of weeks, we hope to have a, a missionary here who was a Reformed Presbyterian missionary who, who worked for an organization called Cush for Christ and was a missionary in South Sudan. And there are Dinka people and Nuer people from South Sudan who have come who have been gathered by the Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel and who are now the worshipers of God and bringing him tribute. This is what's happening throughout the world. And it's happening to this very day, and it's happening here. I mean, this is, this is the prayer, isn't it, as we gather for worship, that through the preaching of the gospel, 
God might bring some more Gentiles from our congregation and from the world. He might bring them so that they would be the worshipers of God and give him tribute. But of course, uh, it will finally be realized in that great day that uh, the book of Revelation speaks about when there's people from every nation and tribe and language under heaven gathered in this vast multitude that no one can number and all with one voice standing shoulder to shoulder focusing on the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as he sits on the throne and giving worship to God, the God of gods and the Lord of lords. So this prophecy in Zephaniah's day begins to be fulfilled in the coming of Christ, particularly in the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, throughout history, and then climaxes when Christ returns again in glory and the nations bow before him in worship. What a great hope God has given to us. But then in verses 11 through 13, he focuses not upon the purifying of the nations, but on the purifying of the nation of Israel, his own people. And you can see that in verse 11 with the change of pronouns. So verses 9 and 10, he speaks about them, the Gentiles, the nations. Then in verse 11, he says, on that day, you shall not be put to shame. So beginning of verse 11, almost to the end of verse 13, though not quite the last uh, sentence of verse 13 is a different section. Zephaniah speaks about the work of God amongst the people of Judah. And he says there that there's going to be revival amongst them too. The gospel is going to do its work. You can see that in verse 11. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Now notice in chapter 3 verse 5 that one of the things that the Lord castigated his people for was that they sinned with arrogance, with a high hand. They knew no shame. But now, not only do they know shame, but God's going to take that shame away. You see, this is one of the characteristics of a Christian. An unbeliever sins and feels no shame for doing so. Doesn't fear God. Doesn't think that he ought to hide from God because of what he has done. But a Christian knows. When, when God begins to work in the heart of someone, one of the things is this shame, this embarrassment because of their misdeeds against the Lord. So what Paul says in, in Romans uh, 6, he talks about how the Christians uh, now are ashamed of what they had previously done while pagans. And the prophet Ezekiel speaks about those who have come to a sense of who they really are. They loathe themselves. They, they just... They just feel so sick about their sin and their disobedience. And nonchalance about sin is no grace. Shame for sin is an evidence of grace. Now, of course, uh, sometimes people are ashamed for the wrong reasons. 
Sometimes people are ashamed because they feel guilty, though they're not the ones who have, been, who have sinned, but they're the ones who have been sinned against. They have a sense of embarrassment because of what has been done to them. Well, the gospel deals with that too. That's an illegitimate shame. But Jesus Christ takes care of that too. But here, Zephaniah is speaking about a legitimate shame. They had rebelled against the Lord, and they had felt bad about rebelling against the Lord. And now, Zephaniah says, listen, here's good news. The Lord is going to take away your shame. That's what the gospel does. You know, one of the reasons that our Lord was crucified is because it's a picture of him bearing shame and scoffing rude. Naked he hangs between heaven and earth. Not because he was guilty, but treated as guilty. And the shame and humiliation that our Lord experienced on the cross, well, that was for our sakes. He took our shame upon himself so that we might walk with head held high, not in arrogance and self-righteousness, but in joy and confidence that the Lord has taken away our shame. So that's the first thing. The gospel's going to work. The Lord's going to remove shame from amongst his people. And then he also says in the middle of verse 11 that he's going to remove from their midst their proudly exultant ones. So there were people within the nation of Israel who did not humble themselves before the Lord, who were arrogant, self-righteous, self-confident people, would never bend the knee, would never acknowledge their sin. They, they would be the ones who would join with Pharaoh and say, who is the Lord that we should obey him? Well, the prophet says, God will deal with them. He'll remove them from their midst. He'll, he'll levy judgment upon his, his nation in order to purify his people by removing from them the arrogant and the proud, those who will not submit to the Lord. And then he goes on to say that God is not only going to remove the proud from amongst the people, but at the end of verse 11, he's going to remove the pride from his people. He says, you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. God is going to do a work of grace. He's going to remove their shame, and he's going to remove their pride. He's going to humble them by his grace. He's going to give them a humility before his awesome majesty and before his tender grace. So that the nation of Israel, notice how it's going to look. He speaks about that in verses 12 to 13. The nation is going to be transformed. God's going to revive them. He's going to purify them. And the people that he's going to leave in the midst of the nation are a people, he says in verse 12, humble and lowly. They're poor, poor in spirit. They recognize their sins, that they have sinned against the Lord. They are humble because of God's justice and because of God's grace. And they seek refuge in the name of the Lord. They trust in him. They rely upon his grace to deal with their sin 
infelicities and to take care of the judgment that they deserve. And notice as well, just as the Gentiles are going to serve God and worship him, so will these transformed, revived, purified Jews. Verse 13, those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice. I mean, that was their problem. They were, they were doing unrighteousness. Well, that's a thing of the past. They will do no justice. They will speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. That is, this is a transformed people. They're going to become like their God. That's what, what Zephaniah is prophesying, that God is going to do this great work of renovation in the future and bring within his own people his astonishing grace that will transform them so that they will be the people that God intended them to be. Well, when will he do that? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Verse 11, on that day, what day that is, we don't know. It seems like this is what God is doing throughout world history as he works in his own people, the Old Testament covenant people of God. But he promises purification of the Gentiles and purification of the Jews. And then the result is found at the end of verse 13, where he gives this wonderful promise, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Here's the, the promise of heaven. They shall graze and lie down. Heaven is, is, a, is a picture where the Lord Jesus Christ is the shepherd. He's a shepherd because he has given himself for the sheep. He's died in order to deliver them from the tyranny of their enemies, from the tyranny of Satan. And he has brought them into his fold. And, uh, and they have peace with the Lord Jesus as the shepherd. as He feeds them and leads them beside still waters, feeds them in green pastures, protects them from the enemy. He provides a table for them in the presence of their enemy. I mean, think about that. Imagine eating a meal surrounded by those who hate you, but none shall make them afraid, he says. They will live in peace and serenity and happiness, and uh, they will enjoy fellowship with God. This is a, a picture of heaven. They shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Well, who are the they? Well, the purified Gentiles, the purified Jews, Jews and Gentiles together, brought together by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that ancient hostility has has been destroyed. That, that wall of division, Paul says in Ephesians, has been broken down. Christ has made them one by his death and resurrection. They shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. And these purified, revived, regenerated, converted Jews and Gentiles, they're characterized by faith they shall call upon the name of the Lord, and they shall rely and seek refuge in the name of the Lord. They're characterized by faith. They're characterized by worship. 
They're characterized by walking in holiness. They shall serve him with one accord. They shall do no injustice and speak no, no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. They're transformed, renewed people by the sovereign grace and mighty power of our God. So will you be part of the they in that day who shall graze and lie down, and none of them shall be afraid. Well, you say, how do I know? Well, one of the ways you know is if the evidence of God's grace, as depicted here in the Gentiles and the Jews, the purified Gentiles and purified Jews, is evident in your life. Are you humble and lowly before the Lord? Do you seek grace, not in yourself, but in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you felt shame for your sin? And has the Lord Jesus, by his tender mercy, taken that shame away? Is your life characterized by obedience to the law of God, loving what he loves? Is your mouth speak truth, or is it characterized by deceit and lies? These are the characteristics of the people of God. These are the ones in whom God, by his sovereign grace, has worked. And so are you a member of that they? If not, there's still time for you to become so. Today is the day of grace. Final judgment has not yet come. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and ask for mercy, they shall be saved. And if you are, well, thank God for that. It's no kudos to you, of course. We, apart from God's grace, we would still be living in rebellion. But because of his kindness and his everlasting love, we have come to know Christ and all the blessings that come to us through him. Well, let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we pray for this day to come in fullness when all the nations, Jews and Gentiles, will gather in that multitude that no one can number, singing everlasting praise to you, our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb forever. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Prosper the work of the gospel May your word run throughout the ends of the earth. May it triumph. May the nations be brought to know Christ. Work amongst uh, the covenant, old covenant people, the Jews, so that they might come to put their confidence in the name of the Lord, in the promised Messiah. And hasten that day when faith becomes sight, when we see the Lord Jesus in all his glory, and when we, a purified people, will worship him forever and ever. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.